0: There you go, guys. Uh, my name is Wayne. If you don't know me, um, I spoke last week. Some of you used have come back. That's good. Um, last week, I spoke about David and Goliath, and we were talking about courage and suffering. And um, <laughs> it's funny sometimes life's got a way of sitting you on your ass, hasn't it? Because I had to go to the eye specialist this week, and yeah, I didn't, was a bit rugged. And um, I'll just let you know that I'm a hypocrite, and I didn't really live up to what I was telling you all about last week, about showing courage for the suffering, so I've got a wee ways to go. Um, so we we tracked through David and Goliath last week, um, we're going to track through some aspects of David's life this week. Uh, I just want to start by by just saying a little bit about telling the truth. Um, you know, it's a tough gig doing it up here sometimes, eh, because you, you know, you, you know, your limitations and you know you don't really know that much and you, you sometimes wonder what you've got to offer you know but um look i'm, I'm going to be saying some stuff there's some stuff and i blame craig for giving me the text but there's some stuff in here that's pretty challenging look i'm just giving you my opinion you know i'm just giving you my opinion i if if there's one thing i know about myself and my life is that i'm often wrong and i often don't realize i'm wrong so um uh, don't take me at face value. It's your job to work it out for yourself, if what I say is correct and true. Uh, you can't blame me. I'm just going to give you my opinion, okay? It's your job to uh, discuss it and work it out and see what you think. Right, so we've, um, we've had David and Goliath. Uh, David's killed Goliath, and I think the last thing we talked about, he'd cut Goliath's head off, and we thought it was a big head, you know, not like our normal little heads, and he was taking two hands to, to lug it back to his tent. And then, so he's, he's done that there, and now we're going to rip into the story. I'm just going to go through some verses again at the start, and we'll, we'll track into it. So he's killed Goliath, Goliath, and he's coming back to, I guess, what you'd call everyday life. So I'm going to start into reading here. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang. Saul has slain his thousands. And David has tens of thousands. Saul was very angry with the refrain, and it displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. So we're starting to track through the story here now, and so we see that Saul's getting a bit jealous. You see, and he's, you know, you look at Saul, I think the scriptures tell us he was a head higher than every other guy in the land. So he's a big dude, so physically he's got, he's got all the power, he's got the armies, he's got the wealth, he's got the woman, he's got it all, he's the man, you know. And it's the thing about pride and jealousy sometimes, isn't it? you can have it all, but you don't want to see someone else get a little bit. And I think if we're honest, we can sometimes see that in ourselves with that green-eyed monster and jealousy. You know, so Saul is getting a bit jealous of David because the woman is saying, He's killed more people than Saul. He's a bit more of a man than Saul. Okay? So, so this is where we, we first start to see a bit of jealousy coming through from Saul. Verse 10. The next day an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing with the liar, as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled, hurled it at him, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. And now we see, we see at the start of this that Saul's got a bit jealous, you know, the green-eyed monster turned up, he's a bit proud, he's got pretty jealous, and that's the thing about, it's the thing about jealousy and about thoughts, if you percolate on them and you let them fester, they become actions, and we all know that ourselves, don't we, that if we, if we let negativity and we let it fester in our brains and our minds, often those thoughts become actions, and in this case they did, he's jealous of David and then eventually he gets him. It says here, uh, an evil spirit from God, Well, I don't know what that means. You know, I don't know exactly what that means. I'm guessing it's kind of like a fit of rage, or he's just really, really annoyed. So he gets the spear and he throws it at David, so he's trying to kill David. So his thoughts turn into an action. He's trying to kill him. Okay, so verse 17. Saul said to David, Saul said to David, Here is my oldest daughter, Mira. I will give her to you in marriage Only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. For Saul said to himself, I will not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. So now we're looking at the situation. He's trying to find... He's got jealous. He's been really jealous of David. Then he's tried to kill him, and now he's going to try and get someone else to do the job. I don't really know how that lines up, that just because David gets offered his daughter in marriage, he's got to go and fight some Philistines. It might be a cultural thing. It doesn't really tell me. But there's obviously some reason he's thinking, okay... Really annoyed, now I'm gonna kill him. Probably not a good look. I'll try and get someone else to kill him. I'll try and put David in a situation where he um, gets killed. You know, so when we when we can't hurt people, sometimes when this this pride turns up and, and starts to fester, we um try and get other people to do it, eh? And David said, but David said to all, Who am I and what is my family or my clan in Israel that I should become the king's son in law? So when the time came for Mirab, Saul's daughter, to be given to David, she's given to some other dude. So now we look at this, and we've seen, we've had a look at Saul's pride. His pride, it's festing it there. Now we're looking at David, and David's saying, where he seems to be saying, who oh am I, man, I'm not, I'm not good enough to be the king's son. He's showing a bit of humility, and that humility seems to protect him from being in that situation where the Philistines might kill him. Okay? okay so now we're seeing that it looks like David's got a bit of humility there. We're going to keep tracking through the story. Now, now Saul's daughter Michal was in love with David and when she told Saul about it, he was pleased. I will give her to him, he thought, so that she may be a snare to him and so that the hand of the Philistines might be against him as well. So once again, this, for some reason that we're, or well, to me is obscure, by getting his daughter's hand in marriage, he's got to go out and fight fight some of the Philistines, which is the, I guess the enemies. So Saul said to David, now you have a second opportunity to become my son-in-law. Then Saul ordered his attendants, speak to David privately and say, look, the king likes you, man, and his attendants all love you. Now become his son-in-law. They repeated these words to David, but David said, Do you think it's a small matter to become the king's son-in-law? I'm only a poor man, and I'm little known. So once again, it looks like David's showing his humility. So we've seen Saul's pride turn into jealousy, and David saying, No, look, I haven't got the money. I'm, I'm maybe not the right person. I'm, he's, he seems to be showing some humility. And now, and it's interesting what, um, what you end up preaching on when you end up doing a sermon. But I'm going to stick to the text. I blame Craig. When Saul's servants told him what David had said, Saul replied, Say to David, The king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. This is kind of a brutal way to get a girl, isn't it? This is kind of, this is starting to show the brutality of the age that I'm not really sure we understand, but we're going to keep tracking through and it gets a bit worse. When the attendants told David these things, he was pleased. You know, we were just looking, thinking about his humility, and you think the one thing that someone who's humble would be thinking, well, if I've got to go out, and kill a hundred people and then do that to them. It's probably not a plus, but no David's pleased to do it. He's pleased to become the king's son in law. So this humble guy, David, is pleased to do it. So before the allotted time, David took his men with him and he goes in and he kills two hundred. So he's asked to kill a hundred. He went out and killed two hundred Philistines and he brought back their foreskins. And this bit well, I don't think this bit cracks me up, but it's it's an amazing. And then he counted them out in full number to the king. One, two, three, a hundred, a hundred and one. Um, so I, I look at the eh, say, and I was, I was thinking, Craig, why'd you give me this to preach on, man? You know. But it looks like David was humble, but now I'm questioning his humility because he's been asked to go out and kill a hundred people, basically, okay? And that's, that's not that flash. And then he's got to go, basically, and grab them and cut the end off their penises take them and show them to the king. That's barbaric. That's really brutal. Not only does he do that, he goes and doubles it. For what reason? Oh, I might show him a bit of the man, I'll kill 200 of them. I'll do it 200 times. And I was trying to figure out, (laughs) I was trying to figure out, what's the story, what's the message I'm going to (laughs) bring out of this, these particular verses? And I don't really have one. You know? There's a reason why I've done it this way, and you go and see by the end of the sermon, hopefully, but but what I really want to focus on is 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 really what the age was like the barbarians and the br- brutality we wouldn't we just don't really understand this, do we? We just don't we don't really understand someone who would go and do that or someone who would even ask that so we're seeing what's what's a really a really brutal barbaric. we're seeing a very real picture of what David and the way that his life was back then okay the message out of it I'm not sure but um but we, we're seeing aspects of his life. But what I do think is that I thought David was humble there at the start. He said, no, I'm only a poor man. But then he's thinking, no, I've got a way to do it. Maybe he Maybe just didn't have the money. Or maybe he didn't like the first girl. Maybe the second girl he thought, yeah, I'll go and do it for that. We just don't know those things, you know. So we thought David was humble. But now I'm starting to wonder, is he, pr- is he proud? Is he as proud as Saul, you know? And pride's a hard thing to categorize, isn't it? Pride's a really hard thing to figure out because there's nothing more obvious in other people and less obvious in ourselves, you know? It's the thing we hate most in other people and we're the most unaware of in ourselves, you know? Pride's a really, really difficult thing to um, put your finger on. So look, we've, we've seen this aspect now. We've got through that, thankfully, and we've seen a, a really brutal aspect of David's life and, and, and what, what things were like. Now we're going to move on to another, another part of David's life, and we're going to look at David's life with Jonathan. So Jonathan was the, the king's son, was Saul's son, and they had a very, very, very good relationship. In fact, a lot, of, a lot of serious scholars have questioned whether the relationship between David and Jonathan was a sexual relationship. Okay? And of course, that probably makes people uncomfortable. Okay? But a lot of people have questioned that, and there's reasons why people think that. Okay? And I'm just going to read some verses here now. I'm just going to read them the way they are. And we'll just, we'll just have a look at this. So, so we're looking at the relationship between David and Jonathan. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. Another verse. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the son of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of his robe that was on him and gave it to David in his armor, and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Another verse. David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept together, and David wept the most. And then there's another verse, and it's not from this particular passage, but it's later on when Saul gets killed, uh, when Jonathan gets killed, sorry, and David's grieving, and he says, I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of woman. So those are, some, those are some verses that a lot of people have looked at. And the, I guess the, the question was, they've asked is, is, was David in a homosexual relationship with Jonathan? Now, well, of course, we don't know. You know? It's going to make people quite uncomfortable to think about it. But we don't know. There's nothing, and to be fair to me, there's nothing in that text that makes me think they were. Okay? I see nothing in there that's, that says that. So, so, of course, we don't know. But I want to briefly touch... On this aspect, because we're going to look at another aspect of David's life here, and I want to briefly touch on this relationship with Jonathan, because it staggers me. It really staggers me that of all the stories in David's life, this is the one that seems to cause a lot of controversy. And it's the possibility of a loving, consensual, equal sexual relationship between him and Jonathan that causes all the controversy. And the reason that staggers me, the reason that staggers me is when I look at the age And I look at the way the culture was, David had what, did he have eight wives? You know, he ended up with um, hundreds of, they call them concubines in the Bible, and when I was a kid growing up, I always had this idea a concubine was like a porcupine, and I, so when I was a little kid hearing these stories, and he's got, what, hundreds of uh, concubines, I thought like he had a hedgehog farm sort of thing, and I was thinking, oh, that's pretty nice, good old, good old David. Then I found out that concubines are basically prostitutes but probably not the money getting exchanged so it's a very unequal relationship. So basically David had a heap of probably young girls, 14, 15, 16, that had no choice in the matter, that had probably maybe even been taken as slaves and they were there for sexual gratification to do whatever he wanted when he wanted. That's the reality of the age. It was a very different age, okay? And so... When I look at that, the relationship between, between him and Jonathan pales in comparison to me, to, regardless what it was. When we look at the brutality of that, of, of that situation, I mean, by today's standards, it's um, at best, by today's standards, we would call David a Harvey Weinstein, wouldn't we? You know, who's used his power and his position to coerce women into sex that's at best, at worst we'd probably call him a rapist, you know, we don't know, we don't know, so I want to show another aspect of that, that life there, once again the brutality age, all the things going on that, that David, and to me it's the best part of the story, his relationship with Jonathan, And I don't think it was a sexual relationship, there's nothing there to make, I think he's, they're just really good friends, okay, but that's the, that's the nicest part of the whole story, he's got a good mate and he's loyal to him, you know, so that's another aspect we've looked at there of David. And now we're going to go to one more part of it here before we rip into what, what's really going on. And this is, this is David at Gath. So, um, so now we've had... It, we've had uh, Saul's been trying to kill David. Jonathan's been helping him out, trying to get him away. So he gets him away. So David gets away from Saul. And then we rip into this, this little mini bit of a story inside of the story here. That day David fled from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, Isn't this David, the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands, but David has tens of thousands. David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of King Achish, king of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence, and while he was in their hands he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his bed. Achish said to his servants, Look at this man, he's insane, why bring him to me? am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come to my house? So now we're seeing another aspect of David's lives, and we, know we don't question David's bravery, because we've seen him, we, we saw what he did with Goliath. He's willing to go out and kill 200 people, basically, to get a girl. He's brave, and we see in the scene he's also afraid. He's very much afraid of King like He's so afraid that he pretends to be a madman. He pretends to be insane, so that either the king doesn't recognise him or the king doesn't do anything about it. So that's another mini story in a story. And once again, I'm just trying to show really kind of lots of aspects of David of what his life was like. Just paint a picture of a guy, okay? So what do we got? We've got a guy, David, who is humble and he's also proud. He's incredibly brave. and Sometimes he also seems like a coward. He's a friend with a king's son and he's also a lowly shepherd. He's often incredibly sensitive to others' feelings, and he can also go out and cut the penises off 200 men for no other reason than to get a girl. He's a guy who can play the madman and the intellectual. He has multiple wives and heaps of women that he can just use and abuse for sexual gratification. And he also has an incredibly intimate, maybe even sexual loving relationship with his best friend. This is a complex guy. This is a complex guy. When we look at him in the light of today's society, he comes across as either a murderer with a sadistic streak, a misogynistic sexual deviant who uses his position for sex, and also a lion-hearted warrior of unbelievable skill and bravery. He's a complex guy. He's a complex guy. So what does looking at David's life teach me, and what does it teach us? Firstly, it tells me that we are all enigmas, that we're all complex. It teaches me that we're all both sinners and saints. It tells me the foolishness of group identity. No one is a group, we're all individuals. It tells me that we don't need to be defined by our past. And what lies behind us is much less important than what lies in front of us. It tells me that we all fall short of our potential. And in those wonderful words of Robert Browning, ah, but a man's reach should exceed his grasp, or what's the heaven for? But mostly, what I get out of the story, I couldn't find much in those actual parts of David's life, okay? But mostly what I find out of the story, it tells me that redemption is available for all of us, no matter what we've done, okay? Now, how do I get that from the story? How do I get the story that redemption is available for all of us, no matter what? Well, it's because later on in the series and One of the other speakers that comes, that follows on for me, and they'll do it much more eloquently than I can. And they'll end up telling you that David humbled himself before the Lord. He humbled himself before the Lord. He said, and these are great words, against you only have I sinned, he said. David eventually got to a spot with all the stuff that we know I've done. He said, against you only have I sinned. And I'm thinking, man, really? You've just gone out to 200 people, you've used an abused woman, you've done a lot of bad things, and you don't think that you've done something to those people? Really? You think you can get away with that? And so we've got to sort of look at that. We've got to look at that really hard. How can he do that stuff to people and say, no, it's only against God that I've sinned"? He's claiming to have only done wrong against God. How do we make sense of that? I wonder if it's because when we do stuff wrong, When we all do stuff wrong, we break laws and values like honesty, integrity, truth, goodness, selflessness, and love. In fact, I'd argue we can't do wrong unless we do break those laws, unless we do break those principles. And those principles, in my opinion, are at the very heart and they are the very nature of God. And all of those values that we've just talked about, honesty, integrity, truth, goodness, selflessness, love, compassion, all of those values, in my opinion, they're just based on one universal law. Just one law. There's just one thing. And it's the law that sets man apart from the animals. It is the law that is most evident in the life of Christ. It is the law that all the great religions and faiths of the world hang on to and hold at their very core. And it is the core guiding principle in your life and in my life and in everyone else's life on the planet. And it's a simple law. It's a simple law. It's the law of fairness. It is fairness that reaches through our human history. It is fairness that every single law and rule is based on. It is the law of fairness that the schoolyard conflict and the nation's conflict are caused by. It is the single overriding principle that you hold dear and that you believe in uncompromisingly. It is the thing that you expect all others to follow and to know. And I believe it is the heart of God and it is at the heart of Christ. Because what does Christ mean by do unto others? What does he mean by do unto others? What does he mean by love your neighbor as yourself? When you look at those two statements, those great statements of Christ when he was here on earth, the underlying principle in them is fairness. I believe he means fairness. Both those sacred statements have fairness as the underlying philosophy. And this is the thing about those statements. This is the thing about fairness in those statements of Christ, which is why they've been around for a long time and they refuse to go away. Because Christ's great statement, do unto others, as you would have them do to you, and love your neighbor as yourself. You had heard them long before you ever heard them from Christ. They're ingrained in your very nature. They are in that still, small voice that's inside of you, that you've always known as there. They're your conscience that you always try to override. This is why Christ's words are so powerful and so sacred, because they are a part of all of us, and we knew them, long before we ever heard them. It is God's moral law. As C.S. Lewis said, he knew a thing or two. He said it's God's moral law. It's the natural law. It's the universal law. It's the law of fairness. It's the fundamental underlying principle of God. It is the only thing, breaking the law of fairness, breaking God's moral law, is the only thing that David did wrong. It's the only thing that I do wrong. Only thing that you do wrong. And it's the thing that Christ never got wrong. And I've been looking at this and I've been trying to figure it out. And you know, I think there's only one way to break the law of fairness. There's only one way to break God's moral law. There's only one way to break the heart of Christ. And that's pride. I used to struggle when the older thinkers used to talk about pride as though it was, and it's an obscure thing, pride, and they had this really stay away from pride. All the other sins seem to be a little bit irrelevant, they didn't seem to be such a big deal but pride they held up and I used to think man, look at, look at the real stuff look at killing people but they would hold pride up for some reason and I could never understand it I'm still not sure I really get there but may I'm getting closer what is pride? in the bible pride does not just simply mean arrogance or ostentation instead it means preferring self-will to God's will Prefers you want to do what you want to do rather than what God wants you to do. Pride is when you decide to go against God's underlying principle of fairness and goodness. It is pride that created the devil. It is pride that brought sin into the world in the Garden of Eden. It is pride that it is at the root cause of all that is wrong with the world. And it is pride that is wrong with you and me, and David. Pride in its essence thumbs its nose at God and says, I know better. I'll do it my way. And there's only one cure for pride. And David shows us what it is. It's humility. The only cure for pride, I believe, is humility. Humility is basically saying to God, you know what? I've made a great mess of things. I don't know as much as I thought. And I'm going to do things your way now. You know? That's its essence. This is, this is what I think the only real lesson that I can get from David. He got a lot wrong. He made a lot of mistakes. Did a lot of really bad things. But at the end he humbled himself and he said, I've broken God's laws. And he seemed really sorry, eh? He seemed sorry. And this, of course, is the great lesson from Jesus. Firstly, he humbled himself and he became a man and he walked around on planet Earth. You know, and I believe he didn't come so much to teach us what it was like to be a God as much as he came down to teach us how to be really human. Many say he came to change God's mind about us. You know, I, th- I think I disagree with that. I think he came to change our mind about God. And lastly, he came to invite us to be like him follow him, to emulate him. He never asked us to worship him. He had the right to, but he didn't. He just asked us to follow him and his example of loving people, helping people, caring for people, feeding the hungry, water for the thirsty, helping the sick and the poor and the marginalized. He was the only person who could legitimately be proud And yet he lived his life with genuine, authentic humility. You know, I'm amazed at those wonderful words of Christ. The creator of all things. Who in all things and in whom all things hold together. When he humbly prayed, not my will, Lord, but yours be done. Not my will, God, but yours be done. What a humble God. What a humble God. You know, I'm a very proud and arrogant man. And I really have no right to be preaching this sermon. I'm a hypocrite and I'm a liar and I get a lot of stuff wrong and I'm a really average human being and you do well not to listen to too much of what I say. You know? But I have found, I have found that when I look at Christ, and then I try to follow his example. It makes me humble, even if just for a little bit. You know, I look at Christ, and I know I ain't that great. I ain't all that in a bag of chips. You know, it gives me perspective. It gives me real perspective. You know, to be humble. There's, there's sometimes it's the old, it's the older sayings and it's the older songs that sometimes mean something. And there's there's one that really exemplifies to me how to how when you look at Christ, you find out really what your place is and you find your true humility and it's that great old great old song turn your eyes upon jesus look full in his wonderful face and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace love your neighbor as yourself said christ do unto others he said be fair I sometimes wonder if everything else is just background noise, you know.